Let's learn a little bit more about Christ this morning. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, if you would. If you need those sermon notes, the other fellows are moving around. Matthew chapter 7. Just raise your hand and they'll hand you those notes. Matthew chapter 7 as we get started this morning. There's a story that's told about an individual who was an old prospector out in near the Denver, Colorado area that this gentleman had been there for a number of years. I think if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, it was some 43 years that he was prospecting. He lived kind of often in his own little cabin. He was a recluse. He had a friend just down the road, another prospector, but he was there working on his, his claim for years and years and every so often he'd go into town to get supplies and he would stop and see some of the relatives that were in Denver and then come back out and he was like three hours away from the city. Well word got out that the old prospector passed away and so the word got back to the family that was living, the distant relatives living in Denver so they made the trip out thinking that maybe there's something there, pictures, memorabilia, something at his cabin that maybe they would be able to use or would want or to pass on and keep as a keepsake. So they came out and they went through his belongings. There was a table. There was an old bed there. There was a lot of you know equipment that he used for digging and things of that sort. There was a couple old lanterns. There really wasn't anything that they saw of value. And so <coughs> they decided that they would just take a few of the odds and ends, just like um, you know, talking pieces, points of conversational interest. And they took up the lanterns, some of the other things, and they were loading it in the car. And as they were lo- getting the last load into the car, which wasn't a lot of a load, but they were getting it there, up the road came walking the prospector's friend from just down a mile or so down the road that he had no one and who also had a claim. And the man came walking up and they chatted. He introduced himself and they said, oh yeah, you know, our, our you know, distant relative told us about you, that you were a friend. And he said, well, can, did, you know, can I help you? And they said, no, actually we've got everything we want. You're welcome to go inside and whatever's left you can have. Well, you know, we're done. And so the people are getting in the car and the prospector said, are you sure you don't want anything that's left in the cabin? No, you're absolutely sure. Anything that's there? He said, yeah. So he went into the cabin and he went over to where the rug was by the table and he pulled the rug away and then he knelt down and pulled up the floorboards. And there underneath the floorboards was all the gold nuggets that this man had found all these years. It was worth a fortune. The old man stood up, walked to the door, watching the dust as that car drove away, and he said, I guess they should have gotten to know him better. (laughs) Sometimes we miss out on the fortunes that God has for us because we just don't know God better. We're here this morning so we can get to learn about God better. And to find out how we can do better in worship, how we can do better in serving Him. One of the things that we've been doing the last few weeks is thinking, what about worship? And we've highlighted and pointed out that according to Ephesians 5, the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. That's the term he uses for us. So we've been taking the W-I-F-E and saying, what does that tell us we should do? We should worship. We should be giving instruction. We talked about that last week. We should have fellowship, which is going to be our focus this morning. And then we should have evangelism. That's going to be a lot of next month's focus when we hear about missions. But I want to talk this morning about fellowship. Because usually when we think about fellowship, we think right away about food. Okay. Or we think about let's playing some sports together. Or we think about a retreat. Or we think about a camp. Or we think about getting together and doing some minor project. And, and those are all good and fine. 
There's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, scriptures talks about getting together for a meal. It talks about hospitality. Scriptures indicates that there are times where, yes, the men are to get together to teach, the ladies are to get together, and so there's nothing wrong with those types of things. But is that all that fellowship is in scripture? So what I wanted to do is just to help my own self to make sure I have clarity of what the, the book of Acts in particular and the Gospels, to, uh, the epistles talk about in fellowship, I wanted to do a study. And the study that I did focused in on the key word in the New Testament for fellowship. Koinonia is the word in the Greek. And so going through that, I wanted to examine, okay, what does this mean? What does fellowship look like in the New Testament? Not what does it look like in Lebanon, Pennsylvania? But let's go back to criteria. Let's go back to the architect of scriptures and let's ask him, what did you mean by fellowship? What was your concept? And I found out that the word was often used in extra-biblical literature called marriage. They would call marriage a fellowship. They would call business partnerships a koinonia, a fellowship. The word basically, when it was translated in the New Testament, had a variety of different possibilities based on some of your translations. It could be the word fellowship or partnership or working together or the idea of mutual dependence or participating with one another. And when you would study it, you'd find that the word's used 19 times in the New Testament. I've listed for those of you who want to look them up and make sure that I'm giving you accurate information, you can look up all the different passages that we've listed there that would say, okay, this is where the word shows up. Now then studying these passages and looking at them quickly in their context, what is fellowship according to the New Testament? What did God mean by that when he said, okay, about your fellowship? Some interesting thoughts, interesting by comparing all these passages together is that it struck me that the New Testament fellowship involved believers getting together. That, that, that is so simple you're saying, why are you wasting my time by repeating that? Well, what, I, what it is is believers getting together and interacting regularly. What I mean by that is the body of the believers. Most all of the texts are talking about the group as a whole getting together and continuing in the apostles' doctrine. And Paul writing to the whole church and saying, I thank you all for your fellowship. And he says, I want all of you, John writes to his writers, to have fellowship with us. Not, not just an isolated one or two, but fellowship was broad-based. I, I understand from Scripture that fellowship that we can enjoy is clearly, clearly stated it is because of what Christ has done for us. It isn't something that we create, but it's something that he created by his sacrifice for us. You see, the Bible makes it very clear that all of us are sinners. And as sinners... We are selfish. We are not usually real great with whole big groups of people. We are usually critical. We are usually, when it comes to our sin nature, we are condescending to some. And at times we are arrogant towards others. And by sin nature, some of us are shy and want to stay away from crowds and don't like the groups and would rather just be served rather than serve. And when Christ came... Christ, one of the things he wanted his disciples to do was have fellowship and to work together. Well, in order for that to happen, he had to change them. Because they, in their, in their group of 12, they were highly critical of each other. They, they were just, you know, Peter said, though all of you would deny Christ, I would. And they didn't want anything to do with people who weren't like them. And so Christ had to deal with his disciples and he has to deal with us. And part of that dealing with us is saying, okay, I recognize there's a sin nature that we all have. All of us are born with it. A sin nature that, that is too quick 
to criticize, too quick to condemn, too quick to do our own thing. And Christ gave his life on the cross so that we could have forgiveness from that, pen, that sin that is so selfish at times and how it portrays in our lives. And Christ giving his life died on Calvary and then rose again so that we could have forgiveness. And it shows that not only the forgiveness, but he has the power to change us. He, to change us anew, to make us something different than what we're born with, something different that is a new creature, a new creature in Christ. That's why he uses the term, you need to be born again. You need to have new life placed within you, where the Spirit of God comes and enters in. And that happens when we call upon Christ to be our Savior, when we pray and we admit that we are sinners, and as such, we don't deserve to get into heaven. As such, we deserve condemnation, but Jesus died for us, so that we could have eternal life with him and so that he could change us now and he could work in our hearts now and give us new life now and create in us a new type of personality, a new type of, of love so that he can say to his disciples later on, he says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one towards another. And so Christ makes it possible that through his work, through the fellowship he gives with us, through the fellowship he gives with the Spirit, we can be united together, that we're called to fellowship with him, that through him we have a communion, a commonality through the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus Christ that makes it possible for us to get together, to be able to have a, a unity of mind and of purpose. It's Jesus Christ who allows us to have from different backgrounds, different sectors of society, to all of a sudden find a unity and a commonality, to find in a partnership with one another, that he binds us together as brothers and sisters in Christ with one another. As I was reading an account, and you've heard these, and you've more and more oftentimes, I was one account about a veteran who talked about how when they were in the, one of the world wars in the Pacific, that, that there they were, and he said, I felt so all alone. I'd, you know, I had my Bible, and I could read my Bible, but I felt I needed something more. They're just like, are there other believers? Because I feel isolated. And he said he went walking one Sunday morning, and he heard off in the distance over in one area of a clearing, he heard some men singing. He got closer. It's, uh, he said it sounded like him singing. The, the instrument was one of those hand accordions. He said not everybody was a great singer, but he was compelled as he got closer because he heard them singing about Jesus Christ. And he got over there and somebody was, got up and gave a testimony. And then they sang some more and somebody got up and gave a testimony. And then one of the men got up. There wasn't a chaplain on this, at this base. One of the men got up and he read some scriptures and then they discussed the scriptures. And he said it just felt like such a, an oasis in the middle of a desert to be together with other believers and they started gathering and spreading the word. And he said, by the time it was done, the base had, you know, like a thousand soldiers. He said, we were getting like a hundred, 150 on a regular basis getting together. And he said, it just was so refreshing to be with other believers. How's that possible? Through Jesus Christ. So our fellowship together is really dependent upon Christ, which, by the way, that means that our fellowship with, the, uh, with one another depends on us each being right with God. He says this word, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. But if we don't walk in the light, if you, if I are walking away from the Lord, that hinders not only fellowship with God, but fellowship with one another. So he warns us, he says, be careful. 
Make sure that you are right and make sure that your unity and, and you're following me and you're making sure that your, your vessel, your body, that you are the temple of God so that you can have good communion with one another. It strikes me as well, comparing all those passages, that fellowship in the New Testament was not about just sitting and visiting. It's not, not, nothing wrong with that. But that's not what the word fellowship in the context really encouraged and supported. It was just, let's just sit and talk. I'm sure they did that. I don't think it's anything sinfully wrong, but oftentimes that's our modern interpretation of this is fellowship. Just let's just sit and let's visit. But when I studied the text, I was surprised by how many of them fellowship was used in context of working together, laboring together, partnering, partnering together to do something, to accomplish something, not just to sit and to tell your story. But rather, we're working together, we formed a partnership, we're in fellowship to accomplish a bigger purpose, to labor for the Lord. When he talks about the right hand of fellowship in Galatians 2, it is the idea they encouraged us, they were giving us fellowship and encouraged us in providing assistance to us to carry out the mission of getting the gospel out to carrying it further. He talks about it, that idea of the fellowship of the saints, that in that passage, the fellowship of the saints isn't visiting, it's the fellowship of the saints getting together, collecting the funds to help out other church in need. When he talks in Romans, the same thing about our fellowship is, the word koinonia is contribution. It's us doing something together, working together to help the poor saints out who are struggling. And so you have this happen frequently where he talks about this sharing, this helping, is doing something physically or biblically, helping out other individuals. That's fellowship. A fellowship isn't just, let's just get together. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with this. But when you say, we need to work on fellowship, then biblically it says, we need to work on doing God's work together. That's what, that would be the correct way of saying it. That would be the biblical way of saying it. So the work of God that was done, by the way, in all these texts, if you compare all the texts to what they were doing, it's a variety of different activities that they got together, and then you find those unity and one accord. They would get together to resolve a ministry conflict. What about the deacons? What about the, the Gentiles? What do we do with them? To pray together. That was part of their, their doing together in fellowship. They were praying. To study and learn together. Remember I began with Titus 2 and saying they did encourage the men and the ladies to get together like men with men and ladies with ladies. In that text, it's teaching the Word of God was the ultimate goal. Sharing the Word of God. The older teaching the younger. That's biblical fellowship is getting together even, even in these smaller subgroups to learn the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to pray together or as a group getting together and helping and having in fellowship or in common with others reaching out. So I come to a conclusion of all those different passages and say, you know, biblical fellowship, it kind of comes down to this. It's getting believers together regularly. Basically, the body as a whole is what we're talking about. There is never in Scripture any encouragement for some subgroup or some small group to get together and let that be the substitute for the assembly of the whole. I just don't see it. There, there's no passage that promotes that. Rather, what's promoted is this is our getting together regularly for fe with fellowship with one another. Coming together to do something of God's business. That God's business, working together, could be worship, 
learning the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, raising some funds to help out others who are poor, praying together. That's the specifics in those passages. So when people say, well, I have a tough time connecting with others. If you take the biblical approach, the way to connect with others within a body of believers is get together involved in a ministry. Work together. Find some ministry that you can, can join in with some other people and do. And then that blossoms into knowing each other better and harmony and the accord. But then let's bring it back to this. The very basics of all this. It's believers getting along together. Fellowship does, you know, we have to be right with God. But it, there is a truism. We have to be right with one another. We have to encourage one another with a, with a unity, with a, with a one accord. So when we talk fellowship, it's got to be coming to a premise that says, okay, I want to work with you. You want to work with me. How do we create that environment? We want to pray together. We want to, you know, discuss together. How do we create on a human basis that bond that Jesus says, all men will know that you have love one for another? There are many verses that talk about how do we develop that bond? How do we increase that? How do we improve that which Christ has put in our hearts naturally because we're born again? How do we enhance that and, and get closer together at, with others in the group? One is by laboring, but what else do we do? It's how we treat one another. And I can't think of any better text than Matthew chapter 7 that helps us to lay a foundation for creating better oneness, better accord within the body of Christ. It's a familiar passage that most of you all know. You look at it, Matthew chapter 7, go down to verse 12. In Matthew 7 verse 12, Jesus is saying these words, Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We summarize it this way. Do unto others as you would have them. Okay. Now, one, one fella, you know, he learned, you know, or used, he didn't use it, but he was a seminary student. And in, while he was in seminary, he was just of, of this mindset that everything he did, he had to have a Bible verse for. Everything. And so he would have a Bible verse for study. He would have a Bible verse about the job that he was doing. But he was having a tough time with, with something that was happening. There was a lady taking classes in the seminary for counseling courses, and he was attracted to her. And he asked her to go with him a couple times to go out after class and get something to eat. And he was developing a real strong affection for her. And so he was thinking, okay, I, I would like to kiss her. I need a Bible verse that tells me about kissing her. And so he searched the scriptures looking for a verse about kissing this woman. And he found one. Greet one another. So he went to his professor at the seminary to find out if, if this is a proper interpretation. And the professor corrected him and said, basically that's not about a guy kissing a gal because they're in love. That verse is more about guys kissing guys and girls kissing girls when they get together for worship in a culture where that's the way to do the handshake. And so he was put off by the idea of guys kissing guys, which I agree with. Okay, and so he's, he's thinking, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? I don't have a Bible verse. I don't have a Bible verse for kissing this girl. But they're on a date. And so he's dropping her back at the dorm where she was, or her apartment where she was living, and he stuck out his hand to shake her hand. And she just looked at him, and then she grabbed him and laid a lip lock on him that surprised him. <laughs> He was taken aback, and he's like, Bible verse, Bible verse, Bible verse. 
And her response was, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. (laughs) Is is that the interpretation of this text? (laughs) Okay. Is that what Jesus was saying? Okay. I think there's more to it than just, you know, lip locking. Okay. So let's just, for a real quick summary, quick and Burgraff don't go together, I understand. But let's just, let's just do a quick examination and application of this passage. Doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Let's make observation. This is how we reflect God. According to this text, this is how we reflect God. Look back. Now, if you look at chapter, chapter 7, verse 12, what's your first word in the verse? Therefore? Yes, yes? Okay. That means we have to tie it to what's gone on previous. Go back to chapter 7. Chapter 7, it says, Ask and shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. For everyone that asks receives. And he talks about how God answers prayer. He goes on and he says in verse 9, What man is there that if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good gifts to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men would do to you. So he is in the context, what Jesus is setting up is, because God is good and caring towards us, we should be good and caring, therefore, towards others around him. And the premise and the base, your standard of kindness and care for others is, what would you have them do for you? This is how we mirror God. This is how we react, by treating others the way we would want to be treated. Jesus was so insistent upon this becoming a principle in our life, he made it a command. In the original language where he talks in this verse, it's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. This is for my, who are, those of you who are going to be my real disciples. I'm commanding you this. I'm commanding you. I'm ordering you. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is a heavenly, divine command given by the commander-in-chief. Third thought that strikes me is, we are to do better. According to Jesus, we are to live a higher standard and a better standard than the world expects of us. The reason I say that is this. This saying, this idea of doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, it, Jesus isn't the first one who said it. The, you know, he's the first one who said it the way he did. But frequently in other ancient writings, you will have it stated but it's stated in a different way. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. Rabbi Hillel, who was very famous by the first century, was asked to summarize the entire Old Testament law. Love the Lord and then love others as you love yourself. And he put it down, he said this way, what is hateful to you, do not do to others. So from a negative point of view, they applied, do not do unto others that you don't want them to do to you. You will find that same negative expression of this, of this principle in other non-biblical ancient writings. It's a negative content. is don't do to others what you don't want them to do. Jesus is the first ancient... I'm going to use the word philosopher in tongue-in-cheek. He's the first ancient individual to record it and have it written in a positive sense. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. If you don't enjoy being robbed, then you don't rob others. That's what the ancients would say. If you don't like being cheated, then you don't cheat others. But Jesus reversed it and raised it a whole nother level. You do positively to others that you want done to you. 
Not just what you wouldn't want done, but what you want done. A whole new level. You see that even in Matthew 5 where he's talking, he says, the, the rabbis, you know, we're going to love our neighbors but hate our enemies. And Jesus said, no, wait a minute, I'm going to raise this to a new standard that it, it doesn't make any difference. All men concept, that you treat others the way you want to be treated. That you do better than what the world has said around you. You know, he did this all the time. When the, the rabbi said you would forgive somebody three times, and then that's enough. And Jesus raised the standard to say you forgive somebody seven times 70. And he raised it to a new level. Now he's raising it to a new level and saying, you do. You, you do positive. Not just, not just the idea of holding back, but the idea of actively going forward. You do to others the way you want people to do to you. High, a whole new standard. Let's, let's make a fourth observation. God, Jesus, is saying that if we do this, if we do to others what we would have them do to us, then we are living and fulfilling everything in essence of the Old Testament law. That law that talks about in the Ten Commandments, the first commandments, love the Lord with all your heart. The The last six, love one another as you love yourself. And Jesus said these are the first and greatest commandments. He said if on a horizontal level, if you and I make this our standard of treatment for one another, we are encompassing, we are embracing the very essence, the heart of the law of God towards how we treat one another. The commandments of interpersonal relationships. So do unto others as you would have them to do. He says you have, you have arrived, you have lifted up much higher than the world around you what they expect and you are rising to the spot where God says this is the standard I want for you. Let's make another observation. We are actually to do. We are to actually do something. Not just think about it. Not just say, you know, I should go and visit that person. I should drop them a note. I should go over across the the auditorium and say hi to this person to try to be encouragement. I should drop a meal off to that individual. I should offer to assist them because when I was in that situation of moving, I needed assistance and so I should assist those individuals. I should... He said, do it. Don't just think about it. Here's a new standard for a lot of people is not just hear something on a Sunday morning, but actually Jesus raises it up and says, do it. Actually put feet to this command, to this obligation, to this this fulfillment of the Old Testament law. Let's give you a sixth statement. This is supposed to be done personally. This is something that you are to do, not your family, not your people who sit in the same area, not others in the worship group, But those who are claiming, like you, to be a disciple of Christ, you are to do this personally. You are to treat others the way you want them to treat you. A personal action. Let's take it a step further. This is to be done on a regular basis. The command is the idea of keep on doing this. Keep on doing this. Keep on doing this. You want your kids to to treat you with respect then you treat them with respect. You want your siblings to be gracious to you, then you be gracious to them, not just once a week, but on a regular basis, you make this high standard of interpersonal conduct. You you adopt it for your own life. Can we take it a step further? This is to be done without any expectation that the others have to pay you back. I will do this as long as they, they return the favor. There's nothing like that in this verse. The verse doesn't say, therefore, whatever you wish that men would do to you, that you do to them, 
as long as they do it to you. That, that last condition's not there. He's, he raises you to a new standard and says, you do this. Whether or not it's reciprocated or not, this is the way you live. This is the way that you talk to your spouse, the way you want them to talk to you, whether it's reciprocated or not. This is the way that you treat your neighbors. Whether they reciprocate it, whether they share it back, you live at this level. This is how you treat one another. This is how you interact. You want people to, to talk with you. Talk with them. Reach out. In fact, let's take it to this standard. You're supposed to not wait for others. You're to go first. You're to go first. The command has the idea of get this in your life now. Do it and keep it going. You, you make this your standard. You adopt this. Treat others the way you want them to treat you. You go first. You start it. You be the one that if you say there's a conflict and I really wish that we have tension between me and that person and I wish that that person would come and talk to me. You go first. You treat them the way you want. Find out what the issue is. Deal with it. You want that person to, to be encouraged and be an encouragement to you. You go first. You go first. Let's make another observation. This is to be in all areas of life. Whatsoever. There's no limitations here. There's no, there's no, okay, it only has to do with, no, there, there's no compartmentalizing this. This is in all areas of your life. Your speech, your interaction, your time, your, how, you, how you treat the individual in other matters towards their kids, towards their, towards their family, what you say about them to them. All areas. All areas. Can we add another thought here? Can we add another thought? It's to be done in good-sized portions. It's all plural. Everything is plural. Whatever things, not just once, just heaping it on is the idea. You do this, and you keep it up, and you do it. And you, you make this, you know, to say your, your goal to treat others this way time and time again in, biddle, in, in, biddle, in big and in little. That's biddle. Okay. In, uh, in the big and little things, you do it at all levels. You go first. You treat people that way. And can we make this last observation? Without prejudice. Without prejudice. Without, without holding back because of a color of skin or a style of dress or a, a different tone of voice or accent, you do this. This is how you interact with one another. This is how you build unity. This is how you build family. This is how you build fellowship within that church that says we're going to work together. We've got to get along together. How do we improve getting along together? Well, then we start saying, okay, what does this look like in our life? How does, this, how does this show up? Well, let's start making the observations. If you like to be complimented, then you initiate some compliments in your family and at your home. You want, like it when people say, go first when we have luncheons. Well, you don't have to race over there and be the first one. You, want, you like it when people greet you when you come in. Then turn around and greet others. You like it when all of a sudden somebody says, I'm going to pray for you. Well, then you pray for them. You say the encouraging words. You lend a hand. You like it when somebody assists you in some project, some chore. You do that for them. You show mercy. You show forgiveness. When the kids are involved up in some type of ministry, you like it. You like it when others come, when the kids are doing a program, you know, and they, they have some activity. Then you go out of your way when there's a program and it doesn't involve somebody in your family to show interest in their family. You like it when somebody comes and visits you. Then you go and visit some individuals. You like it when all of a sudden somebody calls to see, hey, how you doing? 
Well, then you make that call to somebody else during the week. You initiate it. You like people that are loyal and they don't gossip, they don't criticize. Then don't you do that. You like it when people assume the best, like you're late for an appointment, and they just, boy, you're so grateful that they didn't attack you or accuse you, but they, they didn't assume the worst. Then don't you assume the worst when somebody is late for an appointment with you. You, you do the same thing. Okay? You like it when people treat you in all these different aspects. Well, then you do the same thing. Oh, I love it when somebody sits down and they visit with me. Well, then go out of your way and visit and find and meet somebody new. You like it when somebody says, okay, you know, um, we're going to, well, you know, I'm going to move. I, I mentioned it before. I'm going to move, and I really need people to come and help me move. Then when we announce that somebody has a need of widow, then why don't you volunteer as well? And you show up. When there's ministry opportunities, then you go out of your way and you notice the little things and, and you drop the cards and you like the birthday cards. Well, then you write the birthday cards to people. You like it when, when somebody says, you know, you know, thank you for watching in the nursery. Then you go out of your way and go and thank those who watched in the nursery today. You say, well, I love it when people are friendly you know, and they, they talk with me. Then not be prejudiced. Walk over there to the other side of the building and greet the Spanish people. Some have yet to walk from this side of the building to that side of the building and say, thank you for being here. Go out of your way. Do. Put into practice this idea of doing good to others. Helping others and building up others and promoting the biblical oneness and fellowship and the one accord within the body. That's what he's calling us to do. That's what he's asking us to do. At home, in our, in our interaction with lost folk, in our unity as a body, is treating others the way that we would like them to treat us. There was one guy who heard a message. His name is Kent Nurburn. He heard a message like this, and he thought about it, and he, he thought he would apply it a little bit broader. He thought, well, I'm going to apply this not only how do people treat me, but kind of like how would they, they would treat my other family members. I'm going to treat other people's kids the way I want them to treat my kids. Uh, I want other people to treat, you know, I want to treat elderly the way I hope others would treat my elderly relatives. And so he expanded it, not just to himself, but to his family unit. And he heard that message. And then after he heard the message, he got the trial of his life. He was driving taxi. This was 20 years ago before he wrote the article. And he says, 20 years ago, I was, dri- I was driving a taxi cab driver to make some extra money. I would drive at night. And he said, I got the call to go to this certain place. And I came up and it looked like a deserted apartment building. It was hardly any lights on. But he said, I could see that, you know, there was through the shade. It wasn't a fancy place. It was kind of run down. But he could see a light on. And he said, I know most cab drivers, they would pull up, they'd beep a couple times. And if the person doesn't respond quickly, they'd drive away. But he said, I was thinking in my mind, I want to do to others as... I would like them to do towards, and he had just been thinking about an elderly, his elderly parents. And so he got in his mind, he thought, well, maybe it's somebody elderly. So I'll get out of the cab and I'll go and walk up to the door. And he did it. He got out of the cab, walked from the cab up to the door, knocked, and there was a buzzer, an intercom system, and it said, come on in, and it was a feeble voice of an older lady. Come on up to the second floor, if you would. And he got up there, and there was this older woman. He said she was, you know, mid-80s, 90 years old. She had a hat. She had a coat on. She had a cane. She had a bag there. And he looked behind her, and he said, Ma'am, did you call for a cab? I did. And he says, I'm so glad you came. She said, you know, I've called, and the cabs have come and gone before I could get out the door. 
because it would take her a long time. And he looked past her and he said, it looked like her apartment was nobody living there. Everything was now covered in sheets. The pictures were all gone. There was nothing there. It was like somebody had, you know, she was moving in or moving out or nobody living there. And he said, ma'am, are you okay? She says, yes. She said, uh, I'm leaving my apartment. And he said, well, can I help you? And she said, yes. So, and he's thinking in his mind, treat her like I hope somebody would treat my mom. So he picked up the stuff, he took it down, the suitcase, he picked up the other box, took it down, came back, held her by the arm, helped her down the stairs, which took a long time. She gets out, and to get in the car, and she is thanking him profusely. Thank you, thank you, thank you. He says, ma'am, is there any particular place you'd like me to take you then this evening? After they had done small talk, she says, yes. She says, I'm headed for the hospice center. The doctors say I don't have much more than a few days left. And she says, and so I'm leaving my home and I'm headed, that's where I'm going to die. So she sat on the back seat, and he's looking in the mirror, and he's seeing the tears coming out of her eyes, so he put the meter down, no charge this time. He says, ma'am, where would you like me to go? Do you have an address? And she said, do you mind driving through town? He said for the next few hours, they drove through the city. They stopped at the church where she recollected and told him how she and her husband had gotten married, told him the story of how they dated in fact, and she said, if you go down the block over here, and they went over here, which was now a factory, she says, years ago it was a teen center. And they had food, and they had recreation stuff, and that bottom floor was where my husband and I met, at the teen center. And then she asked if he'd drive by this one old building that used to be the hospital where her two children were born. And she sat there, crying very quietly, and she wanted to go to this place and this place. And this is where she was an elevator lady for years at this department store. He said, we drove around, picked her up around 8-ish in the evening. He said, it was the first light of dawn when all of a sudden she says, I'm tired. Take me to the place. He pulled her up to the place and they must have been waiting for her for a while. Two men came running out. They helped her out of the car very graciously to get into the chair. The cab driver got the stuff out of the car and carried it up. And the woman was opening her purse and said, what do I owe you? And he said, nothing, nothing, you don't owe me. I would just hope somebody would treat my mother with a gift of kindness someday. He bent down, he gave her a kiss on the cheek, and she wouldn't let go. And she wouldn't let go. And she wouldn't let go. And she said, you have made an old lady very, very happy for the last time. He got into the car and he said, I'd picked up no other fares. I said, and to this day, 20 years later, I think that was one of my most important deeds that I have ever done to assist somebody based on doing unto others as you would have them do to yourself or a family member. He said, that deed, that night changed my life. To look, to work at trying to do for others and not having everything done for me. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult to live this way. Maybe that's why Jesus tags it on at the ending of a paragraph about praying. Because it's going to take us a lot of prayer. It's going to take us a lot of relying upon the Lord to achieve this. But if we do, we will enhance and improve the love, the unity, the graciousness that God requires from a fellowship of saints.
So, Father, I pray this morning, help us not just to learn. Help us to walk out of here and live. Help us to live the way you want us to live. To live at a high standard of grace and kindness when it may be undeserved. Of forgiveness when it is truly not warranted. Help us to live a high standard of going out of our way when we are busy, when we have so much to do. Help us with our speech, our deeds, to move beyond in our Christian life of just being nice. Help us to move to a level that Christ calls us to, to live by grace, grace to others. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. Nobody's looking. This is your time of just meditation, praying, and examining your heart and saying, where can I change towards my spouse, towards my kids? Where can I change towards my coworkers? Where can I change towards my fellow worshipers? While people are contemplating that, you may be here this morning and you do not know for sure you're on your way to heaven. At the beginning of the message, I alluded to where you need to be born again. You need Christ to change you from the inside out. Where you need to ask him to change your spirit, to give you the hope of eternity, to change you to be a person that is living by grace. If you would like to talk with somebody this morning about how to be assured that you've been forgiven, how you can be assured of knowing you're on your way to heaven, how you can be assured that the Spirit of God is living within you for now and for all eternity and changing you and helping you to become what Christ wants you to become. Then I want to invite you by the instrumentalist plays through just one stanza and others are praying to go to the right side of the auditorium where we have staff waiting. They will show you from the Bible what you need to do to pray to Christ to become born again. To ask Christ to change you. To create in you a new heart. This is an opportunity for any and all. Just feel free to get up. Go over there and talk with somebody. Find out from one of those men or the ladies who will take you into a private area how to know for sure you're on your way to heaven. The rest, God, give me a servant's heart. Give me a servant's heart that I serve other people. Give me a servant's heart that I treat others the way I would like them to treat me. Help me to rise to a new level, a new standard of grace. Help me, God. That should be our prayer.